You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, which, as you've just heard, is produced with the support of Demirco Express Group. I'm Mike King, and you can find this episode and many more on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, along with a bunch of shorter video interviews. You can find all this content also on thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox. Today, we're discussing all things air freight. Could Apple's sustainability strategy be a game changer? For air freight operators, how are they adjusting to the post-pandemic normality, if that's the right phrase, and it might not be. But this episode is called, Wherefore Art Thou Peak Season? And for good reason. Because while we've seen air freight rates struggle through most of the year, whisper it quietly, but could there be signs that a fourth quarter peak season is brewing? To discuss this, let me invite two people who have all of the answers, or most of them, I hope at least. They certainly know a lot more than me. First up, it's one of the best journalists currently covering aviation. Eric Coolish, supply chain and air cargo editor at Freight Waves. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club. Thank you, Mike. And joining Eric today, we have calling in from Amsterdam, a city that doesn't seem too interested in cargo anymore. We'll hear more on that later. It's Zenita Chief Air Freight Officer, Neil van der Wauw. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Mike. So, guys, let's have a look at this peak season. Just throw some things out there for you. We've got China's economy. It's malfunctioning, I would say. Demand from Europe bedeviled by a combination of inflation, economic stagnation, and we seemingly have these endless excess inventories. On top of that, we've had a container shipping peak season that sort of disappeared without anyone really noticing. So what's been going on? Because we've had these signs of a Gear cargo market in the shape of a 4 to 5% increase in rates and demand at the end of September. Neil, you've been rather bearish about an air cargo peak season through most of 2023. Were you wrong? Have we all misread the macroeconomic tea leaves or is this just about factory closures in China for Golden Week in the first week of October and, uh, and shippers will soon be enjoying lower prices once again very soon? God, that's quite a few balls you're throwing on the air, Mike, with all these macro events. Whether I'm right or wrong, I think is irrelevant because we all have our opinion, some more based on stats than others. But we've been indeed been quite bearish this year on uh, our expectations of demand growth. And to be frank, we still are in that sense. And I think there's more talk about, might there be a peak? Will there be a peak? Do we see signals of an early peak? Then it's actually being materialized in volumes. So what we expected and what we are seeing now is more typical seasonality in air freight. Because if you're comparing September to August, and no wonder, I would say, in most years, would you expect an uptick in rates? You'll see a bit of the, the airlines will go into their, um, their passenger shoulder, as they call it, schedule. So less flights than in the peak of the summer, which will pull capacity a bit out of the market. And it typically seems to be a bit more demand in September. So those two combined, I think, is normal behavior in an 
I think we had a transition from the, the, the crazy two years. Then we saw the sharp downfall in rates. We, we believe there's now more of a floor. And it's quite normal to expect higher rates in September and August. Yes, we also noticed increase, of, for example, out of Vietnam, Southeast Asia into the United States. In a couple of weeks, we saw rates go up by 40%. And then there were signals, well, is this an indication of a peak? Let me put a little bit into perspective. That 40% increase in rates brought the current level more or less at par with what it was pre-COVID. So it was well below pre-COVID a few weeks ago. And secondly, we believe that it's been an accumulation of local events, Golden Week, an Apple product launch, which resulted in that. But I would say it's the exception to the rule. And will it carry on through October and November then? This is when we would traditionally talk about peak season pre-COVID. I think it's unlikely. Eric, you're out there talking to people in the business all the time. Where would you say sentiment is, for example, in the US right now about the rest of this quarter? Yeah, I would say that most logistics folks finally realize there won't be much of a peak season. And forwarders say so far there hasn't been much of a bump in shipping activity from their customers. You know, it's too early to celebrate the recent uptick in volumes and rates. I suspect some of the gains are due to the shipping ahead of uh, Golden Week in China to get ahead of factory closures. Some of the strong activity out of China is South China focused and tied to e-commerce demand. And you also have the new iPhone release. So there's some optimism out there, but the rest of the world is quite muted. Um, chartering full freighters is more case by case for specific customer need these days. One uh, airline executive I ran into last week said he was worried that the market is, is still flat, considering that last year at this time, the market was in a substantial decline. So against easy comparisons, the market isn't uh, improving much. Neil, how are those key air cargo lanes in out of the US performing at the moment? Uh, or evo- have they evolved over this course of this year, in fact? Are they showing anything different than you're seeing elsewhere around the world? Not really, to be honest. We see load factors you know, from Asia Pacific into the US are still pretty high. But load factors from the US into Europe are lower than they were pre-COVID. Same for uh, Europe to North America. So it's, it's pretty, pretty similar. We do see that the US consumer has been able to spend a bit more and then European consumer. So that the volume wised up and held up a bit. But we've seen uh, also to the US a similar decline in rates. That being said, across the Pacific, it is still substantially higher than they were pre-COVID. But that is mainly a result of lack of supply and not a surge in demand. Neil or, or Eric, come in as you, as you wish. Inventory levels. I mean, when I've been talking to people about US inventory levels, that's just seems to be something, a weight on the freight market shoulders that just won't go away. But it's not all retailers and it's not all retailers all the time. It depends really who you ask or which financial report you listen to. How do you both view those inventory levels and when might they ease perhaps? Well, I think, you know, there was a great deal of wishful thinking early this year that importers would clear inventories by early spring and start reordering again. And it took much longer. Now, some retailers and and wholesalers and manufacturers have done a good job of rebalancing their inventories, but it's not across the board. You have smaller companies or or different types of uh, retailers um, that are still, you know, trying to clear out their overstocks. So, Jason Miller, the supply chain guru at Michigan State University, he's recently mentioned that still apparel and some types of electronics and um, other 
types of um, equipment are, are still kind of an overstock phase and forwarders handle a lot of those types of products. So I think it's just taking a lot longer. I think we're getting near the end, but like you said, it's case by case. Let me throw in a different perspective, Mike, if I may. I speak to some shippers who are actually looking at increasing their stock levels for the reason that they are planning to move more of their produce, more of their goods by ocean and by air. And as a result of that, they need to have more stocks, and higher stock or more elaborate based on SKU stocks available because they, they, they can't replenish it that quickly. And I've heard stories that it would take up to a year for these organizations to have the stock levels at the different places so they can safely um, at least try to avoid air freight. There's all sorts of developments going on that might make it a little bit more difficult to use that those inventory levels as a gauge of will there be more demand for air freight. I want to come back to that, actually. And that's a very good point because we discussed before we started this interview about this cool Apple advert that we've both seen that does indicate exactly that. But let's come back to that because I want to ask you something else. I'll just rewind the clock slightly, if I may. A year ago, we were looking at possible deep recessions in Europe and the US, but we were also hoping that reopening of China was going to give everyone a boost. There was quite a lot of moving parts. Uh, obviously, there's a war in Europe as well. How would you say things look now in terms of the demand outlook? Are you seeing anything in the macroeconomic picture or, or in terms of the geopolitical picture that makes you think that this demand could bounce back quicker than we're sort of assuming it will in 2024? I don't see them. I don't see, you know, fundamental macro trends that are pointing towards an increase in demand, whether it's, I don't know how many PMIs there are around the world, 50 plus or something, and they all seem to be a lot of a negative or a negative downward trend. There's inflation left and right, possible threat of a government shutdown, high cost, fuel. I mean, that I typically, I'm quite a positive person. I don't see them. Eric, do you see any positives? I mean, how about less if I throw out peace in Europe at you, or is there anything in the U.S. economy? Well, you know, I, again, the positives would be some of this sense that the air cargo volumes and prices have ticked up in the last few weeks, as we talked about. And I think that's a little bit misleading because it's a short-term blip or corridor-specific. And other than inflation coming down some, and by the way, in the U.S., we just avoided the government shutdown temporarily, so at least we don't have that. But more broadly, I would say that even though the economy looks different and there's some seasonal buy going on by retailers, there's no sign of a demand push. And in fact, I think at least in the U.S., the consumer could get squeezed. Let me explain that a little bit. Consumer spending has been relatively sluggish in recent months. About 80% of Americans have used up their pandemic era savings and credit card delinquencies are now at pre-pandemic levels. Add to that, a student loan payment moratorium has ended in the U.S. That could impact consumer spending, especially for retailers. Some childcare subsidies in the U.S. are ending. That could stretch budgets for consumers. So, you know, headline inflation is higher. We've got chiefly because of higher gasoline prices. So all those things are a squeeze on uh, discretionary spending, and economists appear to be lowering their forecasts for U.S. GDP in 2024. So, Mike, even if we don't have a recession, there likely will be a slowdown. And what you're seeing, I think, is a, a long lag between the time the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates and business start to feel the pinch 
tighter credit where they invest less and lay off some workers. And that is starting to kick in this quarter going forward. Also, you have industrial production in the U.S. and other major economies continuing to head down. And so even with the inventory corrections, I think the main thing, there's so much uncertainty that, you know, maybe the shelves are clear with the retailers, they're ready to order, but there's so much uncertainty. They don't know what the consumer is going to do. and They're holding off. There's a lot of wait and see. Yeah, I agree, Eric. I mean, I think a lot of those economists have backtracked from those severe depressions, even some people use that phrase, but deep recessions, it's a shallower recession or it's not quite a recession, but in many cases or in many countries, it looks like it probably lasts a bit longer. I mentioned Ukraine there because that is one potential boost that the global economy could get, whether that's with inflation, cost of living crisis. If we did have peace, and I hope we do, but it seems unlikely any time in the next 12 months. But hypothetically, can you explain to me, both of you, uh, or whoever wants to take this question, what happens to air cargo markets, given where we are on the supply-demand front at the moment with that balance, when all of that airspace opens up? Because straight away, global effective capacity of belly hold and freight capacity increases. What happens then for air cargo? Can you explain to our listeners how that all works? I'll, I'll jump in there, Mike. I, I'm not exactly sure... But it, you know, I think the carriers and the shippers would welcome a reopening. It probably would add some capacity and maybe that would pressure rates. But at the same time, it would save enormously on fuel costs and uh, allow some of the freighter operators to, to fly more frequencies. And one thing that's worth noting is that many Western carriers would welcome it too, because right now the Chinese and, and some other Asian airlines aren't bound by the closure of Russian airspace. They can fly over, so they have an advantage and that would even the playing field. Uh, let's finish up our, our demand outlook session. Um, trade lane positives. Where do you see them? India, Latin America, Africa? Where's positive short or long term? Is this a China plus one demand story? Neil, do you want to go first? Africa is not going to save the world. I mean, volumes to and from Africa, they will never be able to compensate if Asia Pacific really goes down. I think I read yesterday that MSC, the largest or one of the largest ocean carriers, revoked their uh, GRIs, the general rate increases, from India to the U.S. Well, that's, that's a sign. Uh, general rate increases on the ocean side, they appeared and then they disappeared like snow for the sun, if that's an expression in English. At least it's one in Dutch. I, I like it. I don't know if it is, but I do like it. So I, I think it's all muted. It's, it's, it's not a disaster. I think we found a floor, and I think the rates will you know, cause a new baseline will increase from here seasonality and, and when demand would return. So I'm, I'm, I'm not all doom gloom, but yeah, I, I struggle to see where the big bump in demand would come from on any kind of trade line at the moment. I'll defer to Neil on that. <laughs> all right. No one wants to hit China plus one then. Well, whether this, I mentioned the example of Vietnam where we saw rates really go through the roof, but in perspective, they're at similar levels now than they are pre-COVID. So there are, there are these little pockets, but I think it's very tactical, operational, that really pushes up those rates. Then we see a fundamental change in the macro conditions. In terms of the, the freight market itself, I think there's a good case to be made now. I was looking at some statistics from Drury, and it was the share of U.S. imports from China and how it's evolved over the last 10 years. And there has been you know, a proper shift into Vietnam, as you mentioned, into Thailand, into Mexico. 
So it'd be interesting to see how that continues. I mean, there is now a clear trend and it's coming out in that data. Mike, I think the story is more nuanced because I'd, I'd love to see when the U.S. imports the goods <clears throat> more from Mexico, where are all those parts coming from? I bet you quite a few will be coming still from China. Are you suggesting that some of these shippers might be moving everything into there and just doing the very last little bit of putting the product together and then just moving it over to avoid tariffs? What I mean is that, and who said it? I think it was, this was a CEO, maybe it was Tim Cook or somebody else who said, we're not in China for low cost and we are in China for because there's, there's, the, the manufacturing capabilities of China are, are second to none in many areas. You cannot simply replace that. So maybe, and it's not maybe to avoid tariffs, but maybe to show, hey, we're, we're near sourcing and it's a bit of, call it a political favorism, but I bet you a lot of those parts will still come from China. Although it will not show as much in the figures. I've heard a few stories about a tiny bit of plastic going on in Malaysia and then it's getting ex exported straight into the state. How true those stories are, I don't know. Thanks for that, guys. We'll just take a short break and we'll be back with you soon when I'll be asking Eric and Neil to dissect the supply side of the air cargo market. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. DeMurco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for Trans-Pacific lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, DeMurco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. Eric, you've been writing a lot on the supply side of the air freight market. Aerospace companies that specialize in converting passenger planes to freighters are expected to crank out a record number of units this year, but the poor demand outlook that we've just been discussing is dampening the market for new and after market aircraft orders. Please explain what's happening. Is this a two-speed market? What's going on? Yeah, well, it took a while for the downturn that we've been talking about to produce a tangible hardship in the cargo sector. But this year we've seen, for example, Western Global Airlines cancel an order with Boeing for two large freighters and declare bankruptcy. Air Canada just pulled an order from Boeing for uh, two factory 777s, cargo jet in Canada, scrap plans to convert 777s uh, into freighters. And Vietnam Airlines pulled out of a deal for two Airbus A321 converted freighters. So you're seeing a little bit of some cancellations, not very many. But meanwhile, new orders for freighters, especially narrow body aircraft, have nearly dried up on the conversion side. And I think Boeing um, for production freighters has six orders this year versus 43 last year. One of the things that we see in terms of freight, Eric, um, much as it we do in shipping, is when we have a demand peak, we have a lot of fre fresh capacity is ordered. Uh, and this all happened during the pandemic. So this is obviously getting container lines into a bit of trouble now. We see seeing the same for the freighter operators. Yeah, and for sure. And then in the narrow body freight market, we've probably got an oversupply situation. Um, the lessers and investors probably got a little exuberant um, trying to get a return on investment out of their passenger aircraft during the pandemic when airlines weren't flying. And so they, they rushed into the freighter conversion market. And now we've got too many planes there, at least in the short term. 
But so far, there, there haven't been widespread cancellations because I think lessers and operators are taking a more of a long-term view of cargo demand with compound annual growth of 3 to 4% driven by e-commerce and emerging markets, a wave of replacements for aging freighters and a growing market share in single aisle extended range passenger jets, which reduces the amount of uh, belly capacity. And um, just to follow up or finish the, the point on your, on your last question, there is kind of a two-speed market because on the one hand, while the orders have dropped off, we still have a backlog of orders from 21, 22, and 2020, basically, where these conversion shops are still trying to get through the orders. They are having supply chain problems. So this year, we can have a record year of freighter conversions especially for aircraft like the Boeing 737-800. And next year could be very strong before we start to see a, a tail off. Neil, are you expecting more orders to be postponed or canceled? Well, I don't think people will be expanding their order book. They'll find ways maybe to convert things, you know, freighter to passenger. And, and it, it very much depends on your outlook. I hope that people, well, when they start looking into conversion, they have a 20-year outlook and not a two or three or five-year outlook. And, and it's... Proven, it's very difficult to make money from a plane, from a cargo plane. If you take a 20-year outlook, and yeah, now it's not a good time to enter the market, clearly. I just want to pivot slightly then, thanks for that, guys, about how air cargo is treated. Obviously, during the pandemic, it was something of a golden child. We're in something that is a bit more normal. I don't know what the word is. It, normality doesn't seem quite right, but we're in some sort of new. But we seem to be back into that stage where airports aren't quite so keen on the air cargo traffic that they were during the pandemic. Neil, your hometown airport, Amsterdam, it's been limiting freighter slots for a number of years, or at least not giving carriers access if they haven't got scheduled services, so they've been losing the, their access. I think I've explained that right. And I know they're trying to cut noise pollution, but how do you see this playing out? Because it's caused quite a stir, hasn't it, in Europe? Well, it, it's, it's not just the airport, eh? it's a whole regulatory environment that we need to consider, which is quite complex. And clearly it's society, yeah, in a way demanding that there are limits to pollution and noise and that kind of stuff around airports. The great, especially for someone who's traveling a lot, the airport is so close to the city, it's fantastic. But that's causing our issues because when flights are landing and taking off, a lot of housing is affected by that. So I do not see that as a blip. But I think it's a structural thing where we will see that airports close to homes will be more and more scrutinized. It always seems to be the air cargo operators that are shunted out first when there's a squeeze on capacity near a city. Well, there's more going on. I think also JetBlue is, they, they started operating a narrow-body passenger flight, quite unique, from the US into Amsterdam. I've been reading out that they might also be victim of this. So it's more than just, I, I don't get the feel that this is, let's nag the air cargo operators. This is a broader, more fundamental discussion. Yeah, and Mike, if I could just jump in there. It, it basically, I mean, the, you're right. The cargo slots have been, been treated like the redheaded stepchild at Schiphol um, for a long time, so they don't get as much access. But the current uh, dilemma is kind of airport-wide, where the, the, and recently the government and the slot coordinating agency said they would uh, go ahead and implement the plan for flight caps. So they're basically going to take uh, annual flight caps from about 500,000 takeoff and landings per year to about 460,000. 
And, you know, that's for the upcoming summer season in 2024. And the expectation is that it would be extended. This is despite a Supreme Court reviewing the case on appeal over whether the government followed proper rulemaking steps. And as you can suspect, the airlines and the air logistics sector strongly opposed the decision. They argued the government didn't really take a balancing approach and investigate if it would really lower noise and emissions levels uh, the way they wanted. And it's they didn't consult with stakeholders on, on alternatives. From a U.S. perspective, oh, the airport is skippable, by the way, as, as proposed alternatively to at least guarantee, I think, two and a half percent of slots for cargo aircraft. So that's kind of a compromise give back there they're trying to put through. But from a U.S. perspective, I'd say the, the concern there, is, as Neil mentioned, JetBlue, is the unilateral nature of the Dutch government's decision and, and reduction in U.S. flights. The, the U.S. and the EU have an open skies agreement, basically a free trade agreement to limit government interference in establishing routes and capacity and pricing and so on. And so a lot of industry folks believe the Dutch behavior sets a bad precedent for governments taking action where there's a joint interest and in, you know, established rules in place. And we saw the same thing happen in Mexico when the uh, Obrador government recently decreed that Mexico City Airport was too congested and that all cargo operations should go to a, a former military base nearby. And uh, that really complicated operations for combination carriers. And so, you know, it's basically the same principle where they weren't hold, upholding agreements and working bilaterally to solve the issue. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch how that story develops as we talk here in the first week of o October. Obviously, Airlines for America, the lobbyist is pushing for stronger action for the Department of Transport over this alleged violation of the USE, you open skies agreement. So we'll, we'll watch this space. Is this part of a bigger trend, which we saw pre-pandemic, where we're going to see in a lot of places because of emissions concerns and just too much demand, where we're going to see freighter operators pushed out of these major hubs and um, towards these secondary airports, do you think, both of you? Well, I think, you know, I don't know if it's for emissions reasons, but I think there is a trend that was several years ago started and accelerated during the pandemic where a lot of logistics companies and cargo airlines are looking for opportunities to set up airside warehouses at smaller airports where they get operational flexibility, reduced air, road, uh, and parking congestion, shorter taxi distance to the terminal, available land for cross-docking and, and faster turn times and you know, priority from customs authorities. So that's been going on. You've seen uh, Cunha Nagel this year invested and in, in started to fly into uh, Birmingham, Alabama. DSVs flying to Phoenix Mesa Gateway Airport, not the main Phoenix airport, but a, a smaller one nearby. So you're seeing these pockets where logistics companies and their, their charter airline partners are going to these secondary airports to get better service. And I should add a recent report from DePaul University showed that cargo-focused airports in the U.S. performed better on their large hybrid airports that had large amounts of passenger traffic. Eric, I mentioned it to Neil earlier. There's been a really rather intriguing advert from Apple released just recently where its executives explain to Mother Nature how they're going to get to net zero. And a big part of what they say in, in that advert is that they're going to cut the use of air cargo. Now, hopefully this isn't greenwashing. Um, if this is a real commitment though, what does all of this mean for air cargo? Is it just Apple or is this a wider industry trend that you see? 
Well, you know, I'm not sure how Apple plans to do that. Air is a main mode for technology products. Maybe they're going to ship the initial production runs by air and backfill uh, to the stores by ocean. But Apple is also looking to minimize packaging to reduce the shipping requirements or amount of boxes that they send. So there is a lot of public and regulatory pressure on companies to limit climate damage, including uh, so-called scope three emissions. And those are the ones that companies indirectly produce by doing business with transportation providers and suppliers. So, you know, I think it's uh, an ongoing trend. Everyone's trying to clean up their supply chains and make them as efficient as possible. And um, we'll have to see how it plays out. What do you think the industry is doing or do you think the industry is doing enough to reduce emissions? Is this all about more sustainable aviation fuel and making it available in more places or could we be doing more? Well, you know, the, the air cargo sector, when it comes to reducing emissions, is a little bit of a tough spot. I mean, they don't necessarily control the aircraft. They're dependent on the airlines and the, the manufacturers to produce cleaner aircraft and new technologies. But one of the things in the meantime, as we discussed, was sustainable aviation fuel. And so you're seeing a lot of logistics companies reaching agreements with carriers now to pay a premium to support filling flights with this SAF because it is a lot more expensive. But the problem is there isn't very much SAF being produced yet. Airlines want the governments to help subsidize the production and initial investments to help bring down the cost, which can be four times greater than conventional jet fuel. And engines need to be improved to take 100% SAF rather than a blend. Other than that, ground handlers are starting to electrify ramp and warehouse equipment. So I think on the edges, the air cargo industry is doing what it can, but we have to kind of wait for SAP infrastructure and then hydrogen and other technologies to, to fall in place in the decades to come. I went up to a, a refinery actually in the UK here and the guys there, they're very keen to actually invest in SAF, but it was the regulatory environment that was preventing them doing so. So, I mean, maybe that will improve over here. Are we seeing any action at airports over there? Is this a potential law for the smaller airports? If they can get hold of the SAF, they might be able to get hold of the business. I'm not sure about smaller airports. I mean, it costs a lot to uh, put in the pipelines or, or infrastructure to get the fuel to the airports and to scale up. So I'm thinking it would go to bigger airports first where a cost can be amortized. But SAP is seen as a bridge to hydrogen or other fuels. One thought that I had or I, someone brought to my attention is where you might see hydrogen initially um, in the future is at airports with big cargo operations like a Memphis or a Louisville or Anchorage where the integrators go through a lot because hydrogen will be expensive for the passenger airlines to absorb and, and maybe the planes are configured differently with cargo and cargo doesn't, so, uh, doesn't really care where it sits on a plane. So there might be incentive to develop the infrastructure where there's a heavy concentration of cargo aircraft. So you'd have the concentration at a hub and the ability to control that network all within using that one fuel. But I guess it's more complicated when you've got multiple airlines. Yeah, maybe, and maybe for hydrogen, uh, you know, with, with SAP, I, I don't know, I think a lot of the major airports will, will try and uh, build that in. Uh, I know Pittsburgh Airport in the U.S. is interested in developing its own SAF or having it on site. Um, that's a medium-sized airport, but they've got the luxury of basically sitting on top of natural gas fields so they can kind of make uh, SAF and is supported by natural gas on site. So they might be a little bit of an outlier. All right, just to finish off, can I get a forecast off you? We've got various targets for SAF usage. 
Many uh, view them as overly optimistic. What sort of global SAF use as a percentage of fuel burn are you expecting by, say, 2030? There's a pointed question. Not much, Mike. Maybe maybe 1% from point one now. But after 2030, as the infrastructure starts to get built, I think you'll see the capacity um, start to grow and, and that will increase. Cool. Big question. Well, at the moment, I think uh, Garson Spohr, CEO of Lufthansa Cargo, discussed that during one of their earnings calls or a conference call. He mentioned, I think it's 0.1% at the moment, SAF, and they're doing 0.2%. And he said, if we would buy all the SAF available, we could fly for less than two weeks. And that's just the Lufthansa group. And so there's just not enough around. It would be very, very expensive to generate it in an alternative method than, let's say, what they're currently doing. So I expect those numbers to remain single digit for a long, long time. Neil Van Duau, Chief Air Freight Officer at Zenitor, and Eric Coolish, Supply Chain and Air Cargo Editor at Freightways. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the DeMurco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.